0: Now, a brief word about our shift in programming, you might say, for tonight. Uh, We will offer you the opportunity to ask questions, but we aren't doing the format the way that we have been. Uh, This isn't five questions, rather it's a little bit of a conversation, and then we'll invite you into it. So if you have something you want to ask, just jot that down, and we'll circle back around to you, all right? How about we begin with a word of prayer, and we'll get started. Jesus, thank you the Gospel of John, I'm grateful, Lord Jesus, for the testimony of your beloved disciple. I don't know, Lord Jesus, why you chose to give him that testimony and that opportunity, but I'm profoundly grateful for it, Lord. It has spoken to me in ways that I didn't know I ever needed. So I ask, Father, your blessings over this time we'll share together. And I thank you, Lord Jesus, for the opportunity to share this time together. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So let's talk a little bit about our friend, the Apostle John. He is one of the sons of thunder. You remember that, don't you? One of the ones who called down fire and thunder and lightning upon those who disagreed with him. And uh, Jesus called them sons of thunder for their their latent judgment behavior this is the same john who wrote god is love the beginning of his gospel that we will take up tonight the of the beginning of his gospel the first 18 verses comprise a section that we call the prologue it is of the four Gospels, the most profoundly theological, and of the Gospel of John, the first 18 verses are some of the deepest waters of that. It helps us understand not merely who Jesus is, not merely why he came, but the manner in which he came and the probability of how he would be received. It is a profound discussion that invites us to the table that's already been set for us. So when our friend John opens his discourse, let us acknowledge something. Our belief is that this was one of the last things that John wrote. We believe it's in reverse order from the way it is in our canonical book. In other words, the gospel was last. Written as an older man, one who has had A lifetime of reflection and consideration about who Jesus is and what this means. Now, in full disclosure, I will warn you that this is, if one is allowed such a thing, my favorite gospel. My wife teases me that my last sermon will most certainly be from the gospel of John whenever that comes and the reason for it is i find it the most intriguing because of its seasoned nature if mark is uh, if the gospels are pieces of steak then mark is rare and uh, our friend uh, matthew is medium rare luke medium well and john well done now if you don't like your steak well done then maybe you want to adjust those accordingly but it has with it the most seasoning the best reflection, and the best opportunity for us to understand something different. Of the four Gospels, it is the one that stands out separate from the others. If you are one who wishes to do a study of the four Gospels, then you will entertain a book they call the Synopsis of the Gospels, which lays out the stories all in sequential order, mapping them together and telling you where to find them. For the Apostle John, there are very few overlaps where they run concurrently. Most notable, the resurrection, of course, and the feeding of the 5,000. There are others, but those are the most notable of them. With that as a primer, let us move into the gospel itself. John begins... In a way that intends to invite us in, in a way different than the other gospels. In the beginning, let's pause right there and say John intends to echo Genesis 1. He wants us to see this as a new moment, and yet one that is not new at all. One that is from eternity past and one that intrinsically is linked into God's creative order and God's plan from the beginning. In the beginning, if you look at the Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament, and compare the phraseology and the the word order to Genesis 1-1 and John 1-1, you will find them identical. It is no accident. In the beginning was the word. I hope your Bible has word capitalized. If it does not, would you do me the kind service of capitalizing it for them in order that you might be reminded this is indeed a proper noun. In the beginning was the word. Logos, that's the word that is translated there. Logos, it has with it much more than a simple phrase or expression it has with it the theological and philosophical fullness that erupts from the very core of God's heart it is not merely a theological term but it is a philosophical one too John is attempting as it were to reach across the aisle philosophically for you see our Greek readers those who were classically trained understood that the logos was to be understood as the highest philosophical order. When we see it here, it's the highest theological order too. So in the beginning was the word is not just intended to draw us to Jesus himself as the theological proof of all existence, but rather the philosophical one as well. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. And the word was God. Herein we find a statement about the deity of Jesus Christ. The deity. There are some who would suggest that Jesus was in fact a created being. We've talked about it before, but indulge me for a moment again. The most famous of these is our friend Arius. Arius was the founder of a heresy that said, Jesus was with God, but not one with God. I want you to see verse 2 to that point. He was in the beginning with God. There is no other way to understand that than to understand it as God and Jesus on equal terms in like substance. Arius, his views began to be known by his name, Arianism, and led to a deity that was diminished a deity that was in fact not divine at all. Jesus was a step below God, a created being, one endowed with many deified characteristics but not deity itself. You might say, well, that doesn't sound so bad, but understand what that leads to. It means that Jesus' death on the cross then was no more than any other mortal. If Jesus was not God, then his death on the cross meant nothing. If he was, however, then his death meant everything. O friends, Arius was wrong. And St. Nicholas, thank goodness, was there to help him see his error. St. Nicholas, at the First Council of Nicaea in about 325 A.D., encountered Arius in this conversation. When Arius began to utter his heresies, Nicholas got up to help him find a way to close his mouth. Nicholas, one for whom Santa Claus is named, Punched, Harrius, legend has it, to help him see the error of his ways. Unfortunately, it didn't work. Shut him up for a moment, but not for long. The essence of it, though, remains clear. He was in the beginning with God. What does that mean? It means that Jesus is eternal in nature. Hang on to that, friends. Friends. Because when we recognize his eternal nature, then we are freed from understanding Jesus as just a mere man. Case in point, we have many who wish to divorce Jesus today from the deified nature that he enjoyed. They do so because a non-deified Jesus is much easier to take than a divine one. They do so because if Jesus isn't all that he really claims to be, then we can move him down a peg, at least one, and say we can move up because Jesus isn't that. Oh, friends, either Jesus is who he claims to be and who John portrays him to be, or our faith is in vain, the two are inseparable. That's what leads us to verse 3. All things, and I spent a lot of time studying Greek so I could tell you all things means all things. There's nothing exempted. All things came from being through him. He is the agency then of creation. And apart from him, not even one thing came into being that has come into being. Verse 3 intends for us to understand his positioning at creation. He was not a mere bystander who just happened to be there. He was, in fact, the one who took part in it. A Christ who was pre-incarnate was there, standing witness to what was transpiring. In him was life, verse 4 says, The life was the light of mankind. Hmm. I hope that your Bible capitalized the word light. It intends us to link up there with John 8, 12, where Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. Verse 5, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not grasp it. I still believe That one of the most brilliant inventions ever in human history is a dimmer. A dimmer for lights. A dimmer that allows you to move the light up slowly instead of just one big click. Especially if it were so in the bathroom, first thing in the morning. That first flip of the light switch where lights come on is jarring. We've gotten used to the darkness, and the light interrupts that and breaks through and causes us to say, oh, my eyes, and yet we need the light, just like we needed the light in verse 5. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not grasp it. This is a statement about humanity as much as it is about Jesus. We missed it. Why did we miss it? Because we didn't know to look for it in the first place. There's a parenthetical starting in verse 6. A man came, one sent from God, and his name was John. He came as a witness. The word there, witness, is martus, martyr. He intended then to help us understand the depth of his belief about who Jesus is, not based on theological complexities or on philosophical realities, but rather based on his own blood. he was willing to die for what he believed about Jesus. He came, to, he came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him, might believe. It's the case of potentiality. There is the idea that all can believe through him, but not all will believe through him. Is it possible that the whole world could get saved? Yes, of course, I've prayed for such a thing. But is it likely that the whole world will accept Jesus on the terms that he asks for? No. Our pride, our arrogance will prohibit that. Verse 8 wants to tell us about John. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. This, verse 9 says, was the true light that coming into the world enlightens every person. Now we're back to Jesus, verse 10. He was in the world, and the world came into being through him, and yet the world did not know him. I don't know if this has happened to you, but maybe it has. It certainly did to me just this morning. Last night when I was getting my son ready to go to bed, I had my Bible, this particular one, uh, had my Bible that I was uh, reviewing my notes for this morning's talk. and uh, One of my habits I got from Dr. Stokes, uh, you've had an influence on me there. He said, read it last thing before you go to bed and it'll stick in your mind and, and be subliminal. It works, Vernon. Thank you for uh, your leadership. We're grateful for that. That's what I was doing. So I, I set the Bible down by my son's bedside and forgot where I'd put it. I was ready to leave the house this morning without it, giving up. When my beautiful wife raced into the garage, holding it in her hands, I had missed it on two separate trips into his bedroom to look for it. Sometimes something can be right in front of you and you can still miss it. I won't ask you if you've ever walked around the house looking for your car keys with them in your hand. I won't ask you if you've ever walked around the house looking for your glasses with them on your head. I will just say it's happened to most all of us. That's the essence of verse 10. He was in the world, and the world came into being through him, and yet the world did not know him. They missed him. His obviousness came to be a problem. He came to know, verse 11 says, his own. He came to his own, and his people did not accept him. This is a statement that is profoundly Jewish. He came to his own. Those who had hoped for a Messiah for literally centuries, and yet they did not accept him. But there's good news, and it's in verse 12. As many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name. So to receive him in faith, then, is to receive the right to become children of God. Verse 13, Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, uh, but of God. These statements, blood, will of the flesh, of man, they all reflect an ideological perspective that says We are the children of God because we are genealogically the children of Abraham. Not necessarily is that true anymore. In Acts 10, our friend the Apostle Peter has a vision, a vision of the sheets being lowered down out of heaven. In this vision at Simon the Tanner's house, the sheets come down with all manner of unclean animals residing on the sheet. And God says to Peter, rise, kill, and eat. No, Peter says, I've never eaten an unclean thing in all my life. God says, what I have called clean, you shall not call unclean. It was an analogy. God was saying, things are not what they have been, and they never will be again. Friends, this moment in time is one that has changed everything. The genealogical process of becoming children of God has been short-circuited, not because that process is broken or flawed, but because God has opened a new one. We'll see it in Romans 9, 10, and 11. It is, as it were, that we have been grafted in. Those who were not a people have been made a people. Now, for us here, we don't do a lot of tree grafting. I thought somebody might actually laugh at that. And the reason we don't do tree grafting is because we don't have that many trees. But if you live in East Texas and you want to graft a tree, it's really not hard. You simply find the tree you wish to graft onto and you take the cut from the tree that you wish to graft into it and you affix them together, there's several ways you can do that. You affix them together, and over time, and with good care, they will graft together, and one tree will be made out of the two. It's almost miraculous. I didn't believe it when I first moved to East Texas. After all, I'd grown up in Johnson County. That kind of thing doesn't happen there. Or does it? Yes, it can even happen there. What about here? Well, I haven't tried it yet, but I would suspect, yes, even in the desert, we can find the same practice. We then, we, those who were not a people, the Gentiles, have been invited to become children of God. I don't know if that strikes you like it does me, but it sends a sense of joy right down to the core of my being. What if Jesus had not come for that purpose? Where would I be? Lost. Hopeless. Helpless. And that brings us to verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That phrase dwelt among us. It could be just as easily translated. The Word became flesh and pitched His tent among us. In other words, His dwelling was a short term one, it was intended to be one that He used for a time, but for a distinct and glorious purpose. This statement at the beginning of verse 14 is a highly significant one and profoundly theological. The word became flesh. There is a view in the first century called Gnosticism that has with it the idea that that anything that has physical matter, such as flesh, cannot be divine at the same time. John takes a shot across the bow right there. Not only did the word become flesh, but he became flesh among us. And we saw his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This word, glory, it's the same word that we find in describing the tabernacle, the cloud that resided over it in the Old Testament. It was a glory cloud, doxa is the word, from which we draw the name doxology, glory words. The glory that we saw was from the only Son, from the Father, the one that is filled to the brim with grace and truth. This word, full, you might underscore that if you're interested in doing so. It's the idea of being maxed out. He can't hold anymore. Thus in verse 15, this fullness spills out. And John testifies to it in verse 15. John testified about him and called out, This was he of whom I said, he who is coming after me. Has proved to be my superior because he existed before me. Now, wait a minute, John. Wait a minute. Jesus was born at least a few months after you were. How then can you say that he existed before me? John isn't speaking about birth age. He's speaking about theological age. Jesus has always existed. Now, to our thinking, that's hard to grasp, simply because it is so much different than us. But I want you to rejoice, my friends, that Jesus has always existed. His eternality secures my temporality. I can be confident that he's got me under control simply because he always has been. Verse 16. For of his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. One of the most beautiful turn of phrase anywhere in John's writings. It is a statement that means grace will be applied upon grace. It's a little like when you ask my dad if he wants apple pie or ice cream. His answer is yes. Grace upon grace. The answer is yes. Put some on and then put some more on and then put some more on and then put some more on and put some more and put some more and put some more. more as if we can never quite be filled up with the grace that Jesus is giving. And that's because of verse 17. The law was given through Moses. Let's pause there and go back to Exodus chapter 20. You don't have to physically turn there, but you're welcome to. If you do so, that's where you'll find the Ten Commandments. You can also look at Leviticus. From the beginning of Leviticus till the end of it, it is a series of codes, a series of here's how to conduct yourself according to the Mosaic law. These are the means, measure, and methods that you will use to conduct yourself in proper accordance with a right relationship with God. The law was given through Moses. This word law indicates the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. The law was given through Moses. Jesus didn't give us the law. He gave us grace and truth. And how did he do that? That's back to verse 16. By giving us grace upon grace. The word picture, Dr. A.T. Robertson, well-known Southern Baptist professor in the early part of the 20th century who was a Greek scholar par excellence, he said this, it is as if John has in mind waves on the seashore. One wave scarcely goes out before another wave comes in. Have you ever been swept under by a wave and you were trying to get your bearings back just in time for another wave to come over the top of you? Now, if the wave is made of water, it can be a little overwhelming, maybe even drowning. But if it's one of grace... And it's one we can be grateful for and receive with joy. Verse 18 ends the prologue and we'll end our conversation for tonight. No one has seen God at any time. God, the only Son, who's in the arms of the Father, He has explained Him. In another translation it says, He's made Him manifest. Another way to understand it is to say He has revealed Him. It's as if God was always there, but He was hiding behind a curtain. We could see His visage only through the rumblings and the movings of the curtain. It's only then that we could see Him. And then when Jesus comes, the curtain has been raised. And we understand something about God that we did not understand otherwise. Oh, friends... Tonight, my hope and prayer is that as we go, we'll let the reality of Jesus' true nature, his deified nature, and the reality of his mission, our role in that, and the purpose for which Jesus gave himself, all to wash over us. Because we live in a time where Jesus is uh, one among many. There are those who would say we're wrong to say Jesus is uniquely divine. We're wrong to declare that he's the only way to salvation. We're wrong to declare that Jesus is any more than a good teacher with lots of moral, qu- lots of moral teachings and uh, a a strong ethical underpinning, but nothing more than that. There are those who would suggest that anything more than that is is intolerant and unkind. I do not wish to be either of those, but at the same time, this testimony of Jesus in the first 18 verses of John does not allow me an escape route to say that Jesus is less than who John declares him to be. Tonight, as you go home, my prayer is that you'll reflect on Jesus' true nature and that when people suggest to you that Jesus is something less than that, you will take them to this passage and help them to see Jesus for who John understood him to be. All right, friends. Perhaps I've stirred a question or two from you. My friend Gary is here with a microphone. We will invite you to stump the chump once more. It's not that hard. Perhaps you have something that you just want to inquire about. If not, that's okay too. Yeah, I didn't think so. Praise the Lord. Yeah. The the problem with John's prologue is that it is profoundly deep. It is a little like on the, trying to do this on a Sunday night, taking you by the seat of the pants and throwing you in the deep end of the pool. Maybe you saw the movie John Wayne was in, where he found a young man who was seven years old and didn't know how to swim. Did you see this movie? When... Mr. Wayne finds that out, he does exactly that, grabs the young man and throws him in the water. So the boy's mother comes running and says, he'll drown. John says, no, he'll be okay. He'll just take a minute to find his footing. Perhaps you'll go home and thrash around a bit in this and you'll come back and say, Darren, could we speak about that once more? My answer will always be the same, happily. My friend John has taught me much about who Jesus is. My hope is to be able to share that with you. Let me pray for us and we'll be concluded for the evening. Gracious Jesus, I'm so grateful for these, my friends and family who have gathered with us. I'm grateful for their patience and I'm grateful, Lord Jesus, for your word. My prayer is that you would send us home, Jesus, ruminating and considering these heavy and weighty things that you've given us in these first 18 verses. Let us not, Lord Jesus, flounder around on our own when you have provided us the lifeline that John has written down. Let us instead hold on to you for who you are, not just who I've imagined you to be. And so guide us now as we go from here. Send us, Lord, to those who don't know the hope we have And let us, Lord Jesus, prepare our hearts for Easter, for it's not far off. We love you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Thanks for being here tonight. See you soon.